This is Taste for Tenacity, show number 25. What is going on, everybody? My name is Ben Trella, and this is Taste for Tenacity. This week on the show, I am joined by Gator Halpern. Uh, Gator is the co-founder and president of Coral Vita, uh, a mission-driven company working to restore our world's dying coral reefs. He is a lifelong entrepreneur that is passionate about starting projects that can help create a better harmony between society and nature. Uh, Gator's work has earned him a number of awards, including being named a United Nations Young Champion of the Earth. That is an awesome name for an award. Uh, A Forbes 30 Under 30 Social Entrepreneur and an Echoing Green Fellow. He lives and works in the Bahamas, where Coral Vita operates the world's first commercial land-based coral farm for reef restoration. That is a mouthful, Gator. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right. So excited to dive into our conversation. Uh, So let's kind of roll things back. What, uh, What did you do after high school? Did you finish high school? What was going through your mind around that time? I had a great high school experience. I come from a really loving, caring family that supported me throughout my education and uh, was actually in high school that I started becoming really passionate about environmental issues. Okay. Uh, I was privileged to go on a few trips around the world and start seeing how both beautiful nature is when you get into the, you know, the jungles of Mexico or wherever I might have been heading and mm-hmm. also was able to witness how quickly our society is kind of shaping the world around us from Hmm. from a bit of a high level and so since high school I've always been really passionate about environmental issues in high school I started the the green club at at my high school and knew as I was going into college that I wanted to study environmental science and be uh, part of the solution to what I felt and still feel like is the biggest issue that our generation faces moving forward with climate change and all of the ramifications of uh, the climate crisis that we're in. So it all kind of came together and started in high school. I, I grew up in San Diego, California, and was on the beach and in the waves as much as I could growing up. And so uh, my current company, which works in, in the ocean, is kind of coming back to that initial love of nature, initial love of the ocean. And uh, yeah, it all really started forming during some awesome high school years. Definitely. Okay. So you're in high school, you start seeing sort of the, the natural beauty that's, that's around us. Uh, you went on several trips. You said you wound up in the jungle. What, what kind of places did you go that, that you got to see? <laughs> Well, the one that I was, I was mentioning before was really a formative experience I took, I think it was my junior year of high school, okay. with a buddy of mine and his dad. We went down to the rainforest on basically the Mexico-Honduras border um, in the Chiapas, and we actually were able to have this experience living with an indigenous community in the jungle there, and the, the village is called Naha in the, the La Condone rainforest, and it was an eye-opening experience where these Mayan descendants had actually retreated to the deepest, densest part of the rainforest to 
escape the conquistadors. Hmm. And in fact, they weren't really found by Western civilization until I believe it was the, the 1920s, early 1900s. Oh, wow. And so they still live life in much the same way that, you know, indigenous natives would have hundreds, if not thousands of years ago in the jungle down there. And so uh, being able to see that kind of peaceful way of life, the really incredibly close connection that uh, some natives have with nature, how they live directly off the land and the resources around them. Uh, But then on that same trip, I was also able to see driving in from the capital of that Southern Mexican state to the rainforest, how much slash and burn farming was going on, how much deforestation was happening to increase mostly cattle pastures. And the rainforest that this community lives off of is shrinking and shrinking and it's becoming much more difficult for them to sustain their natural way of life. And so that single trip was kind of the aha moment of, uh, of just how quickly we're shaping the earth and how that is, um, is going to increasingly become an issue and already is a huge issue um, in the world we live in. So that was definitely quite an experience that kind of sent me off on the, the path of environmental activism that I've been on since then. Okay, so you got to see really the, the harmonious side of, of human life where you can really live in harmony with your surroundings and with your environment. And you, you saw that right next to this very almost destructive form of, of life that was sort of taking away that natural beauty and that, that natural environment that had been there for thousands and millions of years. Exactly, yeah. It was a pretty eye-opening experience, like I said. And um, I've been lucky since then to travel. I, I lived in the Amazon for a while at subsistence farming communities. I've been to, you know, favelas, the kind of uh, township informal communities in Brazil working <laughs> in South Africa. So it kind of sent me off on this uh, kind of short career, which if you're ready to go in the ne- next phase of my life in college, uh, I was really focused on doing different environmental projects with communities, mostly in developing countries around the world. So that's kind of the next step of my path, bringing me towards where I am today. Yeah, definitely. So you, you had this awesome experience in high school. College runs around and you already know in your mind, okay, environmental activism is something that's important to you. And so you dive into environmental science. Um, was, that what, was that study what you were expecting it to be or what really drove you toward the, the environmental projects that you wound up taking on during college? Right. So I always knew that I wanted to do this environmental work. I was really interested in climate change science, in this enormous issue that I think is is shaping the the future of our civilization and and especially is coming to a head kind of in our lifetimes. It's a very interesting time to be alive. And so studying, you know, in school environmental science and then linking it with these research projects that I was doing uh, allowed me to both travel all around the world and experience different cultures, um, but also kind of dig into some of these research issues that um, are 
important when we think about kind of the high level land use and how we're accessing and using resources around the world and how that's shaping different uh, communities and in turn shaping our global environment. So I'll take a step back briefly though to say that um, I'm also kind of just an entrepreneurial minded guy where I'm dreaming up my own projects or my own companies and part of it stems from just the kind of inherent fear that I've always had of a desk job and (laughs) spending whether 40, 50 hours a week Mm -hmm. behind a computer screen as a cog in some larger institution where you're kind of living the normal American lifestyle of two weeks vacation a year never, never sat well with me. My parents parents told me to get a job in high school. And so I walked up the, the hill from the high school to the middle school and started handing out flyers to tutor kids outside of school to like Hmm. the parents waiting to pick up their kids and kind of started my own little tutoring business. By the end of that year, I had maybe 10 kids. Uh, I'd tutor an hour a week and make enough money for me to get by with my hobbies in high school. And I think it was that mindset that really carried on into these research projects and that in college, you know, in the summers I would have had to get a job, go home, start working, make some money. Yeah. But I feared, you know, the normal kind of environmental consulting type of gig that I was getting uh, groomed for in school, potentially. And so instead was searching for the ability to do my own thing, to, to research and get a grant and go travel somewhere I wanted to to spend some time and look at an issue I thought was intriguing. Hmm. And so it it really came from that kind of entrepreneurial mindset of making my own project or my own job, my own activity. And, um, and that was definitely one of the, the motivating factors that led me on this path of pinging around the world. I spent a summer in the Andes, a summer in the Amazon, spent time in South Africa and in Brazil um, putting together these different research projects, which would uh, kind of take the place of, of what would have been a more traditional job trajectory. Hmm. And that's interesting, too, because you had created this, this really strong connection to your environment and, and needing to be in it, both you know growing up and, and surfing and having that lifestyle, and then going on those sort of first excursions throughout your high school career, you really forged this, this overall connection with your environment. And so in, in college, it makes sense that you then took the theory that you were learning in school and found a way to see it in the real world and, and really expose the two to each other and see how the two could connect and play. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I can't, recommend more highly to all your listeners the power of experiencing different cultures and spending some time whether it's you know even in a different part of the U.S. but especially when you get to foreign countries speaking different languages and just the way people think and act and um, and form communities can be 
strikingly different. So give you a different perspective on how, you know, a lifestyle can be in the world. Uh, but then you can also see the kind of root commonalities behind any people around the world and how we're all really quite similar in, in the core values that, that most people have. And so uh, really, however, if, if it's possible, I highly recommend taking some time, some years even, and going out and experiencing different cultures that really has definitely shaped my mindset on what I'm able to do in life and what I really want to do in life. Okay. So you're, you're in college, you're experiencing all these crazy cool things during the summer as you're working on these research projects. Uh, kind of walk us through what was on your mind as you wound down your college career and were getting ready to take that next step in your journey. Yeah. So when I was finishing college, I really was trying to figure out the next step. And as you've heard, I'm a big fan of traveling and experiencing all types of (laughs) new things. Um, And so I was trying to figure out the best way to to both enjoy myself and see more of the world, travel around. Um, And I was thinking about maybe I'll, you know, go ski bum and work on a ski resort in South America for a bit or I could you know backpack through different parts of the world and work in hostels I I really wasn't concerned at all about um you know settling on a on a career job trajectory quite Mm -hmm. yet I'm very fortunate to have graduated college without too many debts and responsibilities that I had to immediately go right into uh, the kind of traditional American workforce, but was able to get out in the world a bit more and enjoy myself, spend some time before in my mindset at the time, I, you know, I have a whole lifetime to settle down and have a career trajectory. And so I actually ended up backpacking from Panama up through the Yucatan. So taking chicken buses around Central America with a few friends of mine and, um, and taking kind of a a big long trip. Uh, but I guess at the same time in the back of my mind, I knew that, uh, I was still super passionate about these environmental issues that I feel like it's incredibly urgent for our generation really to, um, make a difference and start um, start changing the way our society is is interacting with and and using nature in some ways mm-hmm. um, and so while i was while I was in that kind of phase of traveling, I also went down to uh, visit my brother in Europe and I went down to Brazil that after college as well to uh, the Rio plus twenty conference, which was a uh, mm-hmm a big climate change movement that was happening, a big conference down in in Brazil. And so I was bouncing around the world at the same time thinking of how I can become someone making a change in this movement. What's the next step? And I felt like in order to really pursue the types of projects I was interested in, it would be, uh, beneficial to get a master's degree. Hmm. 
in environmental science, or it was actually in environmental management, go back to school and get a little more time and credentials in uh, the, the science behind, you know, environment, environmental movement, and also kind of use it as a launch pad to my next step. So I only had one year of traveling around in between college and going back to grad school. Uh, and I went to the, the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies for uh, a two-year master's program after that, that kind of gap year yeah. post-college. So what was it like going from that really kind of free-spirited lifestyle of getting to backpack and kind of bum around and, and see so many new places in that year to going to a somewhat more regimented schedule with going back to school? What was that transition like? It was interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I actually asked to defer from, from the Yale School of Forestry because I wanted to continue traveling around. I was thoroughly enjoying myself in Central and South America uh, before coming back to school. And they told me actually I'd have to apply again. Hmm. And I was thinking, you know, I, I was, you know, really privileged to have gotten into such a, such a, prestigious, awesome, uh, school. And I was thinking if I continued just traveling around and ski bumming, potentially my application wouldn't be as, uh, as powerful <laughs> the, the following year. And so yeah. I decided to, uh, to head back to, to school, head up to Connecticut. And really the transition at that point wasn't wasn't too difficult. I, I think the transition to the northeastern weather was probably the, the toughest part for me being uh, a <laughs> go boy. I'm pretty soft when it comes to the northeastern winters. Yeah. But, um, yep. <laughs> I, I definitely thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Yale and it, it definitely was a big stepping stone to launch me towards what I'm doing these days. Okay. So then what you're, you're in grad school, you're at Yale, a totally different environment than you had been for a while. Uh, so what was that experience like and what was going through your head as you wrapped up your grad school and were trying to figure out what your next step was? So I started my time at Yale on a similar path of environmental science that I was in college doing these kind of like research projects. Mm -hmm. And I actually uh, spent the summer between my two years at Yale in Brazil researching urban development and how uh, actually the World Cup and the Olympics were shaping hmm. urban development in Rio de Janeiro during that time period. Um, and I was at this crossroads where I could continue doing those types of research projects, uh, you know, writing academic papers and potentially pursuing a PhD in the field. Okay. Um, or the other option in my mind at the time was I could always go back to school and get a PhD if I need to at some point or if I really want to. But uh, there was the kind of entrepreneurial mind in the, in the back of my head saying that, you know, really, I think I can make much more impact and potentially have a much more fun lifestyle by starting my own kind of mission-driven company, something doing something I really care about and, um, and give that a shot for a year or two and see 
see how far it takes me because really sky's the limit in, in this world and we can uh, create and manifest some amazing things around us. So I kind of wanted to, to see where I could take that path. And so it was halfway through my two-year master's program at Yale where I shifted away from the kind of more academic science research lifestyle I had been living and went towards business planning. And my second year at Yale, I really didn't take many, if any, environmental classes. It was more at the business school writing uh, business plans and, yeah. and financial models and um, the – the business plan, the original business plan for the, the company I, I have now, Coral Vita, was actually more or less my, my master's thesis idea. Hmm. So then what, what really got that, that idea to, to come to life for you? How did you come up with Coral Vita specifically as the, the next adventure you want to do in Barca? Hmm. So a huge part of it was my co-founder, Sam Teicher, who was also a master's student at, at Yale at the time. And we were both interested in, in solving these huge global issues that we were studying in school and felt that potentially kind of a market-driven commercial um, path was the way that we might be able to make the most impact. And we were brainstorming different business ideas. You know, actually in my phone, I have a list of like a hundred different business ideas. Awesome. Some of which are <laughs> environmental and some of which are, you know, dumb gag gifts. But, um, <laughs> but at the time we were throwing around different ideas and Sam started talking about reef restoration because um, hmm. he actually had some experience before he came back to Yale for his master's degree. He lived in Mauritius, which is a tiny island in the Indian Ocean, okay. and was working at an NGO there doing some environmental work. And one of the projects that he helped start up while in Mauritius was a, a reef restoration project. Hmm. So he was telling me about that experience, and I had never heard of reef restoration before. I learned to scuba dive, scuba dove all over kind of <laughs> America, yeah. knew the environmental science about how reefs are dying faster than just about any other ecosystem in the, in the world and thought that, you know, maybe we can really scale up reef restoration and make a company that can um, make a big impact in sustaining them for decades to come. And so with just kind of a back porch conversation between me and Sam, drinking a beer, hanging out, talking about reefs. Uh, we then kind of dived into whether or not we could make it into something real and, and build a company out of it. And things really snowballed from there. Hmm. Awesome. So, so now you're, you're, doing it, right? You, you finished school. Uh, did you immediately start building Coral Vita from when you guys kind of came up with that core idea or did you kind of wait to get more pieces in place? So we were really fortunate that um, the university, actually the, the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute, as it was known at the time, supported us as we were graduating with a small grant. Hmm. Um, and basically, that was a grant to have 
Sam and I survive over the course of that summer without okay. <laughs> to go out and get uh, a more traditional job and start start making money. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we got that small grant, which would pay for our housing and meals and and lives for that summer, during which we really fleshed out the whole business model and started approaching different investors and philanthropists to see if um, it really had legs and if we could get some uh, get some support and some funding to turn it into a real company. Mm-hmm. And uh, we made a lot of progress over the kind of three-month summer we were in that, that program at the Entrepreneurial Institute and found a couple partnerships with some leading marine science institutes whose methods and techniques we, we utilize in our work. Uh, and we found our first investor that put in a, a chunk of cash and really made us believe that we can, we can make it happen. It still wasn't up and running by any means. It took years after that, actually. I think it was two years-ish post-grad school where Sam and I were piecing together a few grants here and there. We went to an incubator program in Washington, D.C., and we spent our time basically schmoozing (laughs) at the ocean-minded focus possible, going to conservation events and conferences and galas and pretty much anything that was uh, a place where you could meet either investors or philanthropists or people that just really loved the ocean. Mm-hmm. And we would pitch them our idea. We would talk to them about Coral Vita, about what we're doing, about this new innovative methods that we use to, to restore reefs. And eventually, after a couple of years, we finally cobbled together enough support to have kind of an initial uh, seed funding round, they call it, which at that point it, it became real, you know, before <laughs> those two years we were living partially in our parents' house on friends' couches, making very little money, uh, basically only having enough to travel around to these events and, uh, live our frugal lifestyle. Um, until we reached that kind of level where we had, enough funding and support to make it happen at which point um things kind of became much more real as i was saying we we started taking small salaries and um were able to think through where we were going to go and where we're going to start restoring reefs so what was that two-year period like where you didn't really have anything quote-unquote coming in the door what what was it like trying to build something that you couldn't see the fruits of yet. Uh, it was definitely a long road and still, still is a long road. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs that come with uh, starting your own company and entrepreneurship, but it was also a lot of fun. You know, there was no time restraints as much as, you know, a traditional job or lifestyle would have. And so, you know, I, I did a lot of work while road tripping around, United States, kind of my friend driving in the front seat and me hotspotting my phone <laughs> on my 
we're doing conference calls from the middle of Nebraska and uh, <laughs> kind of to sort things out. So um, definitely was a interesting time. I didn't actually have my own apartment or place to live for the entire two year period. Wow. I was you know, spending some time at my parents' house. We lived in this incubator program in Washington, D.C. a while. There's a lot of camping, driving, <laughs> flying around, uh, yeah. different investor meetings. And, uh, you know, at times it's tough not to have your own space. But I, at least at that point in my life, was, was definitely up for the, the journey. Yeah, you're willing to sort of sacrifice those creature comforts in favor of doing something that had a lot wider spread of an impact. Exactly. Yeah, it's something I really believed in. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to, to be from a, a background where I don't necessarily have to, you know, support my family or, uh, you know, immediately because of debt or whatnot go right into the workforce as I was saying so coming from that background I really only ever could see myself working at a job or doing something that I truly believe in that I feel like is doing something good for the world because um, yeah I don't I don't see what else would be worthwhile Definitely. So you, that, that two-year struggle period is over. You start getting your first big interest in what Coral Vita was becoming. What was the next step? Did you immediately start trying to scale the business or start to you know, deploy everything that you had learned over that two years and the, the connections and partnerships you had made? What came next in, in building your company? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's an interesting industry we're in here. I mean, we're kind of trying to create an industry around refrustration. There's <laughs> yeah. no other, uh, you know, scaling up commercial companies really. And so, um, it's not your traditional kind of tech startup where you can just put the product out there and start seeing, you know, hockey stick growth as yeah. far as, uh, you know, users are concerned or revenue or anything. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, growing living animals and restoring reefs that are owned by governments and public good. And so there's a hell of a lot of legwork that goes into making any of these projects happen. And so after that period where we finally kind of got our first tranche of funding, uh, we started doing that groundwork to figure out where we were going to build our first coral farm. Okay. And so we started looking around the Caribbean for uh, a partner that would offer us the ability to really hit the ground running and, and start up one of these farms without too much hassle because the permitting process can be a, a serious headache and working <laughs> in small island nations has uh, their own complexities when it comes to uh, dealing with the, the red tape that exists in any, in any place. Hmm. And so we took a few months to look around, to talk to a bunch of potential partners, to look at some options of where we were going to land and, and build our coral farm. And after that kind of negotiation period, we ended up forming a partnership with the Grand Bahama Port Authority. 
hmm. uh, which is more or less the municipal government here in the city of Freeport, where uh, we live and work. So it's in the Bahamas, just off the coast of Florida. And uh, they were really excited about the opportunity to bring kind of a forward-thinking startup to the island that does climate change adaptation work and um, is benefiting the local economy, being an ecotourism attraction, but also in in the long run and, and really first and foremost, restoring the natural ecosystems that communities around here depend upon. And so uh, we ended up moving down to Grand Bahama. I moved here over a year and a half ago and have been living here on the island since, building, uh, as you said before, the, the, the heavy-worded world's first commercial land-based coral <laughs> farm for reef restoration. you got to put all the qualifiers in there if you're <laughs> world's first. You know? Yeah, yep, you got to have it really be the world's first. <laughs> don't, don't want anybody to get upset. No, <laughs> <laughs> no stepping on toes here, definitely. So, so you moved to Grand Bahama, you're living in Freeport, you're now building, building this, uh, frankly, awesome company with, a, with an incredible mission. What's it been like? How, how have you felt over the last couple, couple of years? You said a year and a half. It's been a, it's been a journey for sure. There's uh, been some high highs and some low lows. Um, the, the, really, the process of getting things up and running off the ground can be incredibly frustrating and I'm sure it is anywhere just how quickly you want the permits to come through and the electrical you know contractors to start working and the all the different pieces that really have to come together to build something um, not only from the the business side of things you know getting work permits and business licenses and bank accounts and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but especially in an industry like ours where we're actually building the infrastructure necessary to have a, a, a functioning kind of high-tech coral farm. Uh, and so there was a kind of a slog of, uh, of the first years of getting things off the ground and, and putting the pieces together to, to make it start working. But it was also incredibly rewarding to see you know, what had been an idea for years now really start taking shape and, and coming to life and creating uh, what was an incredibly beautiful coral farm and what will again be soon an incredibly beautiful coral farm. I say it like that because uh, Hurricane Dorian just recently came through the island and our farm took some heavy damage. So that was definitely a a low low in the last couple of years but we're uh we're in the rebuilding phase now and we'll be back up and running soon hmm. so what are uh, and and that's kind of a good spot to sort of take a step back from what are some of the challenges that that you've been facing specifically related to how climate change is impacting the the very problems you're trying to solve yeah, so, I mean, climate change is the reason we're doing this work in the first place. You know, I'd be the, the first to say that we shouldn't be doing this work. It's, you know, no one should have to go restore coral reefs because they're dying so quickly. But it's the 
reality of the world we live in and the moment that that we're at as a civilization in that we're changing the world faster than it's it's pretty much ever changed in in the last hundreds of thousands of years and uh coral reefs are really at the forefront of climate change and so we've already lost 50 percent of the world's coral reefs in the world are are dead and by 2050 scientists project that over 90 percent of the world's reefs will be dead um so that's not just an ecological tragedy which is really the reason why you know my heart is in this work is because i love the reefs i love the animals that exist within them and reefs actually support 25 percent of all marine life Hmm. and so as these reefs are dying that wipes out a quarter of the species that exists in the ocean it's pretty shocking um but it's also a serious socioeconomic issue for up to a billion people around the world that um benefit from having these reefs offshore the coral reefs are really pretty much everywhere on the shorelines of the tropics and they provide um breeding grounds for the fisheries so the fish stocks are heavily dependent upon coral reefs hmm. uh, it's a huge tourism boom in uh boon in in many places around the world uh and then also coral reefs act as natural seawalls so that's why it's called a barrier reef you think of the great barrier reef it's a barrier from these waves and and strong ocean storm surges that break up on a reef out to shore uh or offshore before they come on land and so as those reefs die and begin to crumble, the protection, the coastal protection that they provide becomes less and less. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with climate change, it links back to how we need coastal protection more than ever with the increasing hurricanes and storm surges that we're experiencing as our waters warm. And so, I mean, our work is completely in and out connected to climate change. We're only doing it to save these corals from climate change. We do science on the back end to adapt our corals and breed them together so that they can survive the ocean conditions that are warmer and more acidic that are projected in the future. Uh, And one of the big values that we're providing for different communities is building up those reefs that can act as a, as a seawall against the uh, very uh, catastrophic effects of climate change when hurricanes come through and, uh, and really wipe out communities like we saw here in, in the Bahamas over the past month. Yeah, you're really focusing not so much on the economic impact even, but sort of the physical impact of that losing these structures and, and really losing a massive quantity of life can have on communities and the overall ecosystem. Exactly. And, and it's tied closely into the economics, you know. Um, if your storm surge is four feet lower when a hurricane comes through because it breaks on the coral reef offshore, that's a heck of a lot of property and um, 
and houses and the like that are not going to be destroyed from flooding. And so I think it was a couple of years ago, the, the Hurricane Maria, I believe it was, that hit the Florida Keys, caused you know billions of dollars of damage. And there was a study that showed if the reef was healthy in the Florida Keys, which it's not at all, it's about 95, 98% dead in the Florida wow. Keys, um, it would have saved over a billion dollars in uh, repairs that needed to happen in the Keys because it would have provided that shelter. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's closely tied to the economics and that's one of the things we're doing at Coral Vita is presenting that case as a, uh, a prudent economic decision to invest in reef restoration and conservation as well because we got to uh, stop killing these reefs uh, even more than we, we need to restore them. Um, and so we we're constantly making that economic case of how valuable the reefs are and how it's beneficial in the long run to spend money now restoring them. Gotcha. And so with that, I think it's time we start to shift into the, the second portion of our show. Uh, so what are some of the key takeaways that you have found from your career and your projects so far? Um, lots of <laughs> life lessons learned, I guess, over, over a <laughs> uh, few years for sure. I think one of the kind of easy takeaways that, that I can put into a soundbite is uh, to never count on any one option too much to have, you know, a plan B, a plan C and to not depend upon anything more than you need to, uh, Mm -hmm. because one way or another, something's going to fall apart. And whether you, you know, you know, you're working with this partner or this government or uh, this species of coral or whatever it ends up being try to diversify your options and not put everything all all your eggs into one basket is uh, a huge lesson that we've learned a couple of times over the the past few years and yeah. i think we're getting much better at um you know always having contingency plans and backups because uh something's going to go wrong at some point yeah build the parachute before you need it <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So then what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Ooh, my 20 year old self. Um, I don't think I have to tell him to have more fun cause I was having plenty <laughs> of fun. When I he had was, that one covered. <laughs> when I was 20 years old, but, um, I think I would, would tell my 20 year old self that, um, sky's the limit believe that you can create anything you want there's there's no dream you have that's too big to really manifest and and create that in your life and whatever your biggest dream is go for it and there's no reason you can't make it happen send it and see what happens exactly Awesome. Uh, so then what is a book or resource that has helped you in your journey? It can be anything from either the science side, the business side, or just something you found interesting along the way. 
Yeah, a lot of lot of good books along the way. One that pops to mind, which I recently read, which I found really eye opening, was *Sapiens* by Yuval Harari. I don't know if other people have said that one. You you give us you're the first to say it, but I'm a I'm a fan of it. Nice, yeah, um, incredible book. Really, it's kind of a dense read. Took me a while to get through it because I often read a page and then had to sit there thinking about it for a few minutes before moving on. But um, really an amazing uh, source of knowledge that really approaches our culture and why we're here and how we're affecting each other in the world in a perspective that I hadn't thought through before. And so uh, definitely helps me think through how we can create change in the world and, and, why we're in our current predicament. Um, so definitely recommend that book to, to your listeners. Awesome. Sapiens. I'm, I'm really excited. I have that one right on my bookshelf, ready to go. Uh, so lastly, where can people learn more about you and your mission? Go to coralvita.co, so .co, and check out what we're doing. We uh, have a bunch of information on there about coral reefs, the kind of high-tech science we're doing at Coral Vita. Uh, you can go to my bio page and, and read a bit more about me and feel free to reach out if any of your listeners out there, any, any of you guys want to get in touch and, and see, see what we're up to or, or have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email. It's on the website there. And um, hopefully sometime soon, you guys can all come down and, and plant a coral with us here in the Bahamas after We've got the farm back up and running, and um, you can also adopt a coral <laughs> on our website, and we'll give you a little certificate in reply, and we'll grow your coral and plant it out in the reef for you. That is awesome. Well, Gator Halpern is the co-founder and president of Coral Vita. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Gator. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it, man. Have a good day. Take care, man. And that does it for our show with Gator Halpern from Coral Vita. Uh, this show is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I am a Boy Scout, as some of you know. Uh, I've spent time out in, in nature and in the environment throughout my life. It's something that's very important to me. And so naturally, conservation goes very close with that. And with a lot of the challenges that we're facing now, we need incredible action to to start to address them and to make sure we sustain the environment that we have and create a better environment going forward. And so Gator's story and his approach of taking extreme action is really one of the best ways to start to address something that's as significant and wide-reaching as climate change. And he's just focusing on one aspect of it, which is coral reefs. But to to put it bluntly, climate change is something that's going to have a huge impact on every single aspect of our lives. And so hearing from someone that is actively taking steps to prevent and build more resilient ecosystems, it's absolutely incredible. And he's taken something that's important to him, which is the environment, and turned it into not only a business, but a career and a mission that he loves. From Taste for Tenacity, show number 25, this has been Trella. Thanks for listening.